So they sit alone in a room with a single marshmallow in front of them and a single instruction. You may eat the marshmallow free of charge, but if you wait 15 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. Sounds easy enough, but they're four years old. (laughs) So rather predictably, two-thirds of these kids eat the marshmallow within 15 minutes. But that one-third, that patient minority that stalled that gratification in hopes of getting an extra marshmallow, that one-third, well, basically, they followed up on all of them 15 years later to see where did this mentality take them down life. And 15 years later, that third, that patient third, outscored the impatient two-thirds in their, uh, in their school grades and in their overall happiness in life. I wonder, though, are we really any different than a four-year-old in a marshmallow in a room in 15 minutes? I mean, we have on-demand everything today. We want what we want when we want it. We want everything now, we have on-demand music in which you can listen to virtually anything in the world ever recorded on-demand. We have on-demand movies. We have on-demand television. We even have on-demand sex via porn. There's really not much that we can't get our hands on. Now, you, you're familiar with Amazon Prime. Free two-day shipping, plus many other benefits like music and movies and so forth. Yeah, it's really convenient when you live on the mountain and most of what you need is off the mountain and you're not paying for gas to bring that up. (laughs) And you've got kids. (laughs) It's really convenient. Well, that's old news. In major cities, they've now launched Amazon Now. And the slogan for that is zero to happy in one hour. Bring it up here, baby. but doesn't this just show, though, this, we want it now. We are a people who struggle with many things. Modern society, it's shown that we do struggle with more than human history has. Modern society, with all of its options and all of its technology, does bring extra psychological weight upon the human being. And so we live bored We are afraid, we are lonely, we are depressed, and we're stressed. And so we all have a a, a habitual reflex to deal with that. We binge, we splurge, and we munch. (laughs) Now, binging, Netflix did a survey in which they found 60% of their users admitted to binging on a regular basis. 60% of Netflix Netflix viewers binge. Uh, American debt. The average American credit card has $16,000 of debt. We want what we want when we want it. Munching. National Geographic did this issue in which they showed that the average American eats 
one ton of food every year. That's 2,000 pounds of food that we consume. 630 of which is dairy alone. Uh, just, just that. I want you to imagine a 630-pound block of cheese and think, I eat that every year. <laughs> and you see, so we are a bored, afraid, lonely, depressed, and stressed people. And our habitual reflex is to binge, to splurge, and to munch. But is that actually solving anything? And where does Jesus fit into all of this? In Genesis 27, we have a story about a family in which everybody does everything wrong. Esau marries the wrong people and sells his birthright for a momentary gratification through a bowl of soup. Jacob lies and steals. Rebecca eavesdrops and conspires against the head of the family, her husband, and Isaac. Isaac has, if you will, a sweet tooth for meat, for well, a good southern barbecue. And he chooses to bypass his patriarchal responsibility in favor of sinking his teeth into the latest hunted and barbecued steak. So, we come to this story and we see that there's a lot of things going wrong. We often focus on Jacob stealing this birthright and this blessing from his brother Esau, and that that's wrong of him. But tonight we're actually going to look at Isaac, the father, and his error in this whole family drama of biblical proportions. By the way, if you like your soap operas and things, this is, this, this is good stuff. So I want you guys to start, though, by noticing... Um, how many times you come across the word food or game, which is hunted animal, or eat. And in the ESV, I counted and could have missed one or two, but I counted 19 references in this chapter to food. If that's not the emphasis of this passage, I'm not really sure what is. <laughs> so we're going to see Isaac and his uh, indulgence upon food. All right. So here we go in verse 1, chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he's old, he's blind, he's ailing. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. In short, I'm ailing, son. 
And we got to get this family blessing passed on. So go get me delicious food that I can sink my teeth into so that I can bless you. And others, I'm pretty worthless until I can have that nice steak or that nice venison. And then I can find it within myself to bless you. This is already starting pretty pathetic. Well, let's get some backstory here, shall we? Last time we are in Genesis, we saw Abraham, who had a son named Isaac. He waited 25 years for this kid. So naturally, they named him Laughter. That's what Isaac means, Laughter. Like, cannot believe the joy that has come to us. And ironically, also because Sarah, his wife, mocked God, saying, is we really going to have a baby? That's impossible. So they name him Laughter. All the world know we have a kid. And everyone's like, wow, laughing and mocking and happy and all that. So we saw that he has this kid named Isaac. So Isaac grows up. And we actually don't see a lot of Isaac in the biblical story. Isaac's sort of just like a footnote to get from Abraham to Isaac's son, Jacob. Isaac really lives a very sort of invisible life in scripture. We get this glimpse of him and it isn't beautiful. And he starts off well, but he kind of declines toward older age. And so this is what happens. So Isaac grows up and Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. And they, like their parents, struggled to have kids. So Isaac prays to God for kids. God finally blesses Rebecca with, well, you waited long enough. Here's two marshmallows. (laughs) Twins. And there was a prophecy as the twins sort of rumbled and tumbled in there, early wrestling matches. There was this prophecy in which was said, now I'm reading from Genesis 25, 23. The Lord said to Rebecca, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the older shall serve the younger. So in a society in which the firstborn got everything, this was an interesting prophecy to say, wait a minute, the kid that comes out second will actually receive the blessings as if he's the firstborn. So God's doing He's calling an audible on society. He's reversing things a little bit. And then when they grow up, we find that they're two very different children. So in verse 27, Genesis 25, 27, we see that the boys grew up and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. He had armpit hair. He probably had a beard. He probably showered in an ice cold river once a week without soap. But Jacob, it says, was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. So he spent his day cooking with mom and uh, fiddling around on Pinterest about new home fashions he likes. (laughs) So Isaac, as a result of this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. There's our foreshadow that this is going to go somewhere. Isaac's father has a favoritism towards firstborn Esau because he's a skillful hunter. Look at that beard. I envy that thing. You're more manly than me, son. Ha ha. And he is the family poster child. This is what sons of Abraham, our great forefather, look like. And then there's Jacob. How many push-ups can you do, son? Do you even have armpit hair? Come on. Your voice is still cracking. He probably looked a lot like me, minus the beard. (laughs) Small framed, no broad shoulders, and a high squeaky voice. I love you, Jacob. Okay. 
And then we find as they get older, Jacob is also very deceitful. His name Jacob means heel catcher. It means basically deceiver. Uh, Think con artist. That's Jacob. If Ocean's Eleven was a thing back then, he probably would have been the main star. George Clooney or Brad Pitt or one of them. He knows how to get his way with people. Manipulator. So, one day, Jacob was cooking. Esau was probably out on a very long hunt, ran out of food, was trying to live off the land, smells Jacob's cooking, can't believe how good it tastes or smells. So he comes in, he says, give it to me, I'll give you anything. And Jacob says, anything? Just give it to me or I'll die. Okay, give me your birthright. What good is that if I die? Give me that soup. And so Esau pounds it down, pounds it down. And we read in 34 that it was this quick. Uh, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil soup. And Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Total animal, right? Just (laughs) done. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so that's the backstory. Esau then marries some women that his parents don't approve of. You see in chapter 26, 35, that his wives, yes, plural wives, they made life bitter for his parents. So he's on a crash course toward destruction. He doesn't know who to marry and he doesn't know what to sell. He, he's that guy that has no budget and is you know, living um, day to day on his bread or something, is hunting. So that's our backstory. What we come to in chapter 27 is the blessing. So I was really confused about this forever and ever. What? Esau gave up his birthright. So what's this blessing about, right? I, I thought that was a done deal. Was that just like, haha, just kidding. I had my fingers crossed when I said, sure, you can have it. Is it some childish game or like what's going on? Well, turns out there's actually a difference between a birthright and a blessing. So a birthright is what the firstborn would get. Now, when a patriarch died, his estate and possessions went to each of his sons. So however many sons you have, you divide it by that much, plus an extra parcel. That extra parcel is given to the firstborn. So the firstborn actually gets two parcels while the rest get one parcel. Does that make sense? So by right of birth, the firstborn gets twice as much as the rest of the brothers. That's what Esau gave up. Now, the blessing is when a patriarch needs to pass on his legacy and leadership to the next generation. So Esau's the firstborn. I need to pass this on to Esau. Now, this is important because he's passing on the promise to bless the world that God told Abraham he'll do. And this is passed down to Isaac. And now Isaac is passing it down to Esau? The guy that puts soup above his birthright? The guy that clearly isn't demonstrating that he's fit to be the patriarch and leader of this family? The guy who's marrying the wrong kinds of girls and can't even settle on one so he marries them all? That guy? That Esau? But remember, Isaac loved his food. So, look at this one more time. In Genesis 27, Isaac's old, he's ailing, he needs to pass the blessing on. So who does he call for? My son, go get food, bring it back to me, and I'll bless you. Something fishy is going on here. No, Esau's not a fisher. But something is fishy here. If this is the ceremonial passing of leadership rights from patriarch to next generation, this should not be a private affair. 
This should be a communal celebration. The entire family and its extension, anyone who has ties to Isaac needs to witness this event. And yet Isaac is dealing with Esau behind the closed tent flap. Well, Rebecca is doing what she shouldn't do. She's eavesdropping. She's listening in verse 5. And so she comes up with this plan. Now she's going to have this conspiracy to work against her husband. Jacob, come here. Turns out that your dad is foolish enough to not listen to the prophecy and he's going to bless your brother rather than you. We got to fix this. Pause. Have you ever felt that way? That the world is kind of going the way that you think that God didn't say it should go? Or that someone's doing this and you feel like God told you it should go like this? And so you feel like you got to intervene and say, I'm going to make things go this way. We can justify our interference with people's lives and saying, but it's better for you. Or this is God's will. But as we're going to see, this actually doesn't work out better for anyone. Do you not think that God would have given Jacob all the blessings anyways? Did God really need Isaac to make the right pick and verbally pronounce that upon him? God could have taken care of that. But here is Rebecca and Jacob trusting not in God, but trusting in themselves. So, here's my plan, Jacob. We're going to make you Esau. I know, right? It's awesome. And Jacob's like, yeah, but I don't talk like Esau. I don't smell like him. I don't have hair like him. Oh, don't worry, kid. We'll take care of that. So they put hair on his arms and his hands, maybe on his face, give him a little scruff, rub some dirt on his chest. Now you smell like you've been sleeping in the forest. Um, And then they cook up last night's leftovers, put in the microwave. Here, your dad will never know the difference. He's old and senile. And so he takes it in and Jacob walks in. He's nervous and he knows This is last night's food. I hope dad doesn't notice. But here's a funny thing. Isaac is suspicious from the beginning. He's suspicious. Isaac smells something funny and it's not the leftover food. Right away, Isaac's suspicions raised and he says to him in verse 20, chapter 27, verse 20, how is it that you have found this food so quickly, my son? Right there, he's thinking, wait a minute, this was way too quick. Something is not right. And then Jacob, hallelujah, praise the Lord, brother. God did it, kind of basically is how he answered. He's like, oh, okay, okay. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son. So he's relying on his senses to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's all right. Can't, can't fake that deep, masculine voice of Esau's. But the hands are the hands of Esau. Hmm. And now verse 23 is interesting. He did not recognize him because his hands are hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, all right, bring me the food. He eats it and then he rises up and blesses him. Does anybody else spot the logical error in all of this? This is not like, oh, poor Isaac was duped. Seriously? Okay, you're suspicious. All you have to do is say, Rebecca, come in here and tell me who this is. Or if you don't trust your wife, which she apparently doesn't, I shouldn't, uh, he could call for multiple servants. I need multiple attestation. Who is in front of me? 
oh, hey, whoever you were pretending to be, whoever you are in front of me, if you're really Isaac, tell me about your first crush that I know and your brother doesn't. Like, there are so many ways to find out if this is Esau. But he doesn't pursue those routes. Why? Because this is a secret ceremony and Isaac knows it shouldn't happen. He can't let anybody know this is happening. Which then leads us to realize, wait a minute, if what I am doing can only be done in private and not in public, it should cause red flags and sirens to go off and saying, is this really the right thing to be doing? But Isaac goes away anyways. Why? It goes ahead anyways. Why? Because the food smells so good. Of course, it works out poorly for everyone. Uh, Esau has his dreams dashed a million pieces. Lifelong dream. Ah, it's ruined at the last moment. Jacob now has to go into exile. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. His brother wants to kill him. Rebecca loses the son she was trying to promote. Just completely loses him now. And Isaac is the butt of a very bad joke. It ends poorly for everybody. Is there anything wrong with Isaac's desire to eat this meat? There's a difference between enjoyment and indulgence. When I enjoy something, I am taking that part of creation and whatever I'm doing with it, if I'm eating it, being entertained by it, using it, whatever, it is bringing me gratitude toward the creator. God wants us to enjoy creation. It's food. He could have chosen to nourish us with a little gray pill made of stuff that tastes like charcoal. He said, here, drink this every day and you'll live. He could have done that, I guess. But instead, we have this variety of colors, of smells, of tastes, of textures. And when some people put these things together, it tastes really good. And when others put them together, they taste really bad. And depending on this food, if you pair it with this food, it can taste really amazing. And these don't really go like mac and cheese and jelly. But um, other things do like peanut butter and jelly. That's really good. Like we have this diversity because God wants humans to enjoy the eating process. God wants humans to enjoy what other humans can do with the arts and entertainment. We are meant to enjoy what God gives us on this earth. But enjoyment is always the ideal because enjoyment not only causes gratitude for what is there, but it transcends the creation and brings us to the creator. Enjoyment always ends up with gratitude toward God. You use the creation and it takes you closer to him. It brings enjoyment to him. 
But we transgress enjoyment and move into indulgence when we do not allow the creation to take us far enough. Rather than letting it cause us to have gratitude for God, it actually gives us a desire for more gratification. Go back to it. Get more of it. Rather than letting it take us to God, the creation takes us back to ourselves. And we think, wow, that made me feel good. Wow, I want to do that again for myself. In a way, you can simplify this very simply with that common phrase, do you eat to live or do you live to eat? Do you live to be entertained or are you entertained to live? When we enjoy life, when we enjoy what God gives us, we are using these things to enhance life. But when we are indulging in in these things, we are using them because we can't live without them. Because we are actually living for them. Which, when you look at it, is the same thing as idolatry. When I am bored, afraid, lonely, depressed, and stressed, I am turning to these things and I'm giving them the place that Jesus should have in those moments. And I get it. It's a convenient bypass. If I go to God, he's going to tell me how to fix it. When I can just go over here and get a hit and be numbed. That's easier. But that's also the route of indulgence. And okay, so Isaac, when does he start this craving for the meat his son hunts and cooks? Maybe at first he enjoyed it. But somewhere down the line, he tapped into that indulgence one too many times and it became all about the food. And it became all about how his gut feels. And it came all about, I am uncomfortable right now. I need comfort. I'm in pain on this bed. I need that food. I feel isolated from the family. I need that food. Brothers and sisters, when we start to turn to things instead of Jesus, we are indulging in a very uninnocent way. That's not a word, but go with it. We are indulging in a path that may not immediately bring the results it brings to Isaac, but will eventually take us down Isaac's road. Isaac indulged and indulged and indulged, and before he knew it, this became a numbing effect to life. He no longer could tell the difference between Esau's food and his wife's food. Because when we indulge and indulge and indulge, we actually go blind. And that's why he cannot tell who is standing right in front of him. That's why he doesn't know he's at the butt of a bad joke even when the punchline is being delivered in his gut. Because indulging over and over will numb us and blind us to the ways of God and into, as that study of marshmallows showed, True joy and happiness in life. So, I want to encourage us to practice something challenging. Practice living on the edge of comfort. On the edge of comfort. I want you to imagine, here, here's you, you're in the middle, and around you is your comforts. The circle around you, that's, that's comfort. Beyond that circle, you have challenge. And it's difficult, it's scary, it's unknown. 
And we usually try to stay in the middle of that circle comfort as much as possible. The problem is, only dead people don't feel challenges. And so you can live in the middle all you want, but you're actually enclosing yourself into your own coffin of comfort. And it's true. You know people who have surrounded themselves with luxury and comfort and they indulge and indulge and indulge on this and that and that because they can do whatever they want. They may have the resources or they have the worldview that life is about whatever I want and they live that way. And after a certain amount of time, they have zero interest. They're not interesting at all. They might as well be dead men walking because they just go around in their little comfort-wrapped life and like, okay, you're really lame. Like, seriously, But living on the edge of comfort, moving out of that circle, not living in full-on challenge because then you're going to feel overwhelmed and then you're going to binge anyways, right? (laughs) But living on that line of comfort and challenge, like teeter-tottering there so that, yes, we have our comforts, but we're also willing to push ourselves into something that's challenging and might grow us and might shape our soul into something that's eternal and lasting, To live on the edge of comfort. So, four ideas for how to apply that idea immediately. How can I start living on the edge of comfort without necessarily signing up for scuba diving classes or jumping out of an airplane with a parachute? Those could... Just saying. Uh, First of all, fellowship. Yeah, fellowship. The thing Isaac wasn't doing, the, the dad who was disconnected with what's going on in his family, the dad who wanted to bless his son in secret, in isolation. There's a proverb, Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. The man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. If we are avoiding other Christian people, if we're avoiding people that challenge us, people that are looking out for us, and people are trying to push us in the good direction, we are probably living in too much comfort and indulgence. But by putting ourselves out there with people who will challenge us, who inspire us with other Christians, by coming even to church, as boring as church can be, that is a challenge upon the soul to keep going in a direction that everyone else, at least in a positive sense, everyone else is going. Fellowship is vital if we want to keep being challenged. Want to stay who you are? Want to keep indulging yourself? Want to be blind? Want to be like Isaac? Just stay right in the middle of your comfort zone and keep isolating yourself from meaningful relationships. Fast. Second, you can fast. Oh, gosh, we hear those messages all the time. Yeah, well, um, funny thing. So a lot of times people fast because they want to, like, earn some sort of merit in God's eyes. Like, hey, God, I've been extra spiritual this week. It's kind of like a game. Like, I got to, I'm in debt, so here we go. I'm making my payments, God. I'm fasting. I'm going to make up for that. But fasting isn't that kind of a game with God. In fact, God can really care less about how and when you fast. Do you know that? God doesn't care if you fast or not. It doesn't please or displease him at all. Fasting is so that I can learn how better to walk with God by realizing where am I most tempted to indulge? You realize that? When you fast from something, you begin to feel cravings you didn't know you feel on a daily basis. And we're not just talking fasting from food. Everybody gets a little craving here or there by noon. But 
fasting from any sort of media. Yours might be the news. It's like this addicting thing. Like, I got to find out how much worse the world's getting. I'm going to see what stupid thing Trump said this time. Um, yours might be um, movies or television. Um, it might be your cell phone. It might be work. It might be your kids or your family. It might be a kind of drink. Like whatever it is, by pulling away, these things are not wrong. But by pulling away from all these comforts, you begin to challenge yourself and you begin to see what within you is most desiring what. And that's what I can now look out for. That's my tendency to indulge right there. That's what I'm going to look out for. You learn yourself and how to grow with God through denying yourself of your comforts. Just on occasion. Have you ever just chosen not to do a hot shower? Jump into the ice cold shower instead? Just living on the edge of comfort <laughs> and challenge. Um, just seeing simple things like that can do it. Number three, so fellowship fast. Put the remote down and pick a book up. <laughs> or if reading is not your thing, maybe it can be because that's challenging for you. But if you're already a reader, maybe something else that makes you frown. And by making you frown, I mean not it makes you unhappy. That's not the goal here is to torment yourselves, but to do something that makes you say, hmm, that challenges me. I don't know about that. Like that's a good thing to do is to challenge yourself. So sometimes we have free time and we just say, ah, and we just go for the, we don't even think. It's just a habit to go for the easiest activity. But maybe every now and then stop and say, let me do something hard right now. Challenge myself. Fellowship fast, book over remote, and then finally, daily bread. Daily bread alludes to the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. We miss the point of this in America because we don't know what it's like to have daily bread. All of us have weekly bread. I mean, seriously, you open up your fridge or your pantry and you've got a few days worth of food. But not in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time it was, you're praying for bread every day. We so misunderstand this as Americans that I've heard a pastor teach that line and say, Daily bread? Seriously? I'm praying for more than daily bread. That's a weak prayer. I'm praying for mountains of ice cream. And I don't remember what he said, but his point was praying for daily bread is a weak prayer. We should pray for more and have abundance because God wants to bless you. I'm sorry, but that guy missed the point. Praying for our daily bread reminds us that you only need so much every day. You only need so much every day. And that when I exceed my need, when I obsess over things and I indulge, it's not something that affects only me. It affects us. Give us our daily bread. Isaac's indulgence affected his whole family. So we can fellowship, we can fast, we can frown, read a book or something. Uh, Pray for your daily bread. Just to remind yourself, I only need so much every day. 
So when's the last time you chose to challenge yourself? When's the last time you tried something and failed? When's the last time you did something that genuinely scared you? Even just a little bit. When's the last time you chose challenge? Brothers and sisters, it's not a sin to not choose challenge. Don't mishear me. But there can be gradual lifestyles which end up blinding us to the beauty of God's world and the life he has for us if we don't choose to be challenged here and there. So imagine with me if we took seriously the idea of patience. That in a world that wants immediate gratification, we took patience as a route. And we were the people who, while everyone was eating their marshmallow, we were waiting 15 minutes for two. In a world of now, go, go, me, me, satisfy, gratify, I'm feeling this, I'm going to that. In that world, what would it look like if we were different, if we were patient? Don't you think people would start to take the whole Jesus satisfies their needs a little more seriously? If they saw us living like Jesus, truly satisfied our boredom, our anxiety, our loneliness, our depression, our stress. So the worship team's going to come up and lead us into communion. And this is the great place where we get to look at Jesus and say, I'm sorry for the times that I've splurged, binged, and munched instead of coming to you. I'm sorry that I've looked to creation to deliver me or pleasure to deliver me or my choices or my freedom or my demands to deliver me rather than you. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you chose challenge over comfort when you took up the cross and you went to Calvary. And where would we be if Jesus didn't choose challenge? If Jesus didn't live on the edge of comfort? So tonight, as we prepare our hearts for communion, if you want to know this Jesus as the one who can fill your life, we'll have people ready to pray for you in the back where there's the um, the privacy dividers. Let's enter now to, to receive from him his body and his blood as the worship team sings a song, Take It When You're Ready, is at the end of each aisle.